What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 Podcast by Aaron. I'm excited to bring you another interview with our friends over at Embarrass, this time with friend of the show, Bernadette Johnson. Guys, we love Bernadette. She came on here about six months or about four months ago, talked to us all about the upstream outlook right when COVID happened. Now we've got her back to tour to talk about some updates. We're going to really dive into some of the financial bankruptcy stuff, specifically on the midstream side. Guys, you're not going to want to miss this. Stuart was able to sit down with her, and I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to him and kick this one off. Well, good morning. Uh, we are visiting with Bernadette Johnson from Inveris. And good morning, Bernadette. How are you today? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Hey, thank you very much for presenting at the conference, the 25th V Oil and Gas Conference. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, knocking it right out of the park presentation. So thank you. Absolutely. Always, always interesting things happening in the market. The conference was a kind of a really great time to kind of get the group together and talk about what comes next. Fantastic. Hey, uh, we were just chit-chatting about your uh, thing that you've done since, I think you said 2014, on your uh, predictions and models coming forward. And this one is the Midstream Financials and Regulatory Update. So uh, you've got a team of about 25 people, and you really try to get this thing out monthly. Um, can we start with some of the uh, key takeaways and we'll start doing a little deeper dive on some of those discussion points? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so this round, we, and you're correct, we've been publishing this monthly since about 2014. Every three months, we this is where we publish our big outlook. So our three to five year outlook on natural gas, crude, and natural gas liquids. And so this is where we dig into really all the different aspects of supply and demand and do our best to predict pricing. What's going to happen with pricing when what are the risks and what should we be watching out for? And so this one, the topic on this was midstream, uh, really financials and regulatory update. And so it's been a pretty wild ride uh, in the industry period, but certainly the last six weeks or so have been interesting as we've tracked projects, certain projects, pipeline projects getting canceled, other ones ending up in court battles with some pretty negative rulings, and then those rulings reversed by higher courts. It's, it's been a wild ride. Anytime we think about midstream, it directly impacts the production volumes that those midstream assets are moving. And so this is directly going to impact our ability to grow production out of the Bakken or economics out of the Bakken, right? Or long-term growth out of the Northeast. And so this is one where we really kind of focus on some of those things to talk around what's happening and what, what should folks be aware of. Oh, fantastic. And regulatory is going to change a bunch with our political uh, situation going on around here. Um, I know it's too early to call the uh, election, but uh, holy cow, who can keep track with the judges making you know their own calls and uh, regulatory changes? I don't know how you guys can even do it, but those pipelines, uh, was it the Atlantic uh, pipeline that was uh, stopped? Is yeah, it, it is so needed. Uh, New York is importing LNG from the Arctic, and that could have stopped it from out of the Marcellus. I mean, uh, yeah, so that that project's interesting because it was we work uh, we work for the state of Virginia, their regulatory um, group, their corporate or corporate corporation commission, something like that. So the group that regulates utilities and oil and gas and water and all kinds of things. And so what's interesting there is we actually work on behalf of the staff of the commission. And they bring us in when there's questions around 
gas, future gas prices, right? Or um, a, a utilities IRP plan. So we get involved in a lot of cases out there. And so we've been involved in several that touched on Atlantic Coast Pipeline directly or indirectly. And all of that's in the public record. So you can read the transcripts and figure out the cases. I think it's interesting because this is one project. Uh, Mountain Valley is another project. There's a handful of other pipes up there. They're facing pretty steep opposition. This one was a little bit different in that now it's actually been canceled by the sponsors. One of the sponsors being Dominion. And so that's interesting because Dominion um, has a regulated business and an unregulated business. And one of the main shippers on this pipeline was going to be the regulated utility. And so I think it's when you look at this, um, Dominion is one of those companies where they're certainly on, in this part of Virginia and this footprint, they're kind of the big dogs. And so we look at this and we say, is this necessarily a bad thing for Dominion, the utility, now that Virginia has passed certain laws that say we're going to spend over a billion dollars in renewables, Dominion now not having this option and not able to supply this gas to some of their assets means they can now invest in other things. So can they grow their rate base bigger and take that regulated rate of return on a bigger asset base because they don't have this pipeline? Possibly, right? So I think with this one, just like every other pipeline has its own story and why it was canceled, what pushback it got, could it eventually have been done? I think it's, it's a different story for every project. This one is super interesting because it's backed by regulated or because it was backed by Dominion who has a regulated utility. And this actually comes across as maybe it's bad news for them and this is terrible, we couldn't get it done. But when you look in the details, it's probably not actually that terrible. They're probably gonna come out ahead even without this pipeline. Wow, uh, you know, that's stuff that I didn't pick up in the news. So um, they might actually come out better. It's kind of like, uh, Folks, when you don't get the deal, this one turned out to be better. That's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. It's not great for natural gas producers up there trying to move their gas to market. It's not great for the general, the overall market, right? Where if you think the the, the ideal premise should be, we should be generating and creating energy the cheapest, most efficient way, right? For ratepayers, for investors, for everybody. And so I think what you see here is a trend. Anything regulatory that's impacting these pipelines what you're doing is you're introducing inefficiency. So are we going to be able to produce our cheapest, best assets, um, like the Northeast part of Pennsylvania, that dry gas window that's really been stuck for many years because of infrastructure? This is now kind of permeating and extending that, that block. Is that a good thing for the market? Is it a good thing for gas producers? No. Is it a good thing for ratepayers? No. Is it a good thing for our need to have to import gas from other places, which may or may not be U.S. allies? No, right? So you look at these things and it's, it's one piece of a much bigger puzzle that impacts all of us. Um, so how does that compare to the Dakota access? There's no regulatories involved with the Dakota uh, from what I remember reading. Is that correct? That's correct. So Dakota access on the oil pipeline side, oil and gas pipes are regulated so differently. And so with this oil pipeline, um, this is, think of it like we fat, th this pipe was fast-tracked. The decision was made that we that it didn't need to have a full environmental assessment. So then there were some court cases and a negative ruling, which came out a few months ago, that basically said, that's incorrect. We do need to do a full environmental assessment. The unknown was really around um, the initial judge that, that basically said, this pipe has to be shut down to get that done. Then there was another appeal to that, right? And then a higher court basically came out and said, we're going to actually put this ball in the Army Corps of Engineers court. So the interesting thing there is the pipe does not have to be shut down now. 
Um, that environmental assessment still has to move forward. The big unknown, though, is that now it's turned into this political thing. If it's in the, the Army Corps of Engineers court, then if we have a change of administration in January, could you see this pipeline shut down while that environmental assessment is done? And could that take up to a year? Yes. If you don't see a change in administration, does that happen? Probably not, right? So this is an interesting data point where you can follow the court cases, you can follow the appeals, you can see what's happening. But now this is probably one that's more politicized than any other one out there. Wow. Uh, you know, that's kind of crazy. With the, the M&A just absolutely not happening the first half of the year, uh, you had mentioned in the article your team did, uh, the Chevron Noble um that could be the kickoff to the uh, M&A season, do you think? You know, it could. I think a lot of folks are looking. We're looking for a few of those data points in a row that says we're starting to shake loose this M&A market. I think it's probably too early to tell. Uh, some of the tricky part is that with so much unknown around price and the resurgence of COVID cases and potentially new stay-at-home orders and just a lot of unknowns around demand, um, that becomes tricky. Right. So the M&A, that data point was important. I think BP also divested some of their chemical assets. So that was important. There's been a few. But what we're hearing from a lot of clients and a lot of folks that are out there looking for assets is they're still seeing a pretty wide difference between the bid and the ask. Right. What the what the seller is willing to part with the asset for and what the buyer wants to buy, pay for it. So think of it like if the market is depressed, then in theory, these assets should be cheaper. Right. But if you also think that the market is going to recover, you might, if you're a seller, you might hold on to your assets for longer. If you are a buyer, you might be concerned about getting into a, a transaction and then the price dipping back to the 30s and all of a sudden now your transaction's blown up. So what do you do? Do you have to renegotiate? So I think that, yes, we're starting to see early trends that this market is going to shake loose and we are going to start to see activity again. But I would say there's also, we're, we're probably in the first inning, right? It's, it's pretty early. There's a lot of volatility that's very likely to impact commodities, and everybody recognizes that. So until we have a little more clarity on the regulatory environment, right, that matters. If you're trying to sell an asset right now in the West, and any of it's dependent on federal drilling, well, two weeks ago, you got a wild card thrown in, right? I mean, who knows? If you are, um, if you're in the Northeast, right, and you're planning to sell or buy a gas asset, am I going to have enough takeaway capacity? What's going to happen with some of these bankruptcies? Some of these bankruptcies, when we've done an analysis, are probably actually a good thing for the midstream company because the, the operator, the EMP, can now not spend so much of their money servicing debt. Now they can spend that money actually drilling up acreage and increase that volume and increase your throughput. So it's, I think the bigger overarching story here is we're starting to see it shake loose. There's still a lot of unknown, which makes getting transactions done pretty hard. There are certainly buyers out there looking um, and I think it's, we're, we're going to be a few more months before I think we really see, start to shake loose. Um, you know, one of the things that Michael uh, and I get to talk about on the 360 closing bell is that we're seeing a pattern of midstream companies actually having very good financials comparatively to the other uh, organizations. And your report goes into the midstream Um could you give us a little insights on what you're seeing with the Williams and Chesapeake example that you've got listed? Sure. Yeah, that one's a good example. Cause I think, um, and even Williams, so Chesapeake going through a bankruptcy 
Um, I think that wasn't necessarily a shock to anybody. Um, I think the timing is always a shock at some level. But what Williams management has even noted is that this reorganization could actually be a net positive because they're going to have that example I just gave. Chesapeake can have more capital to deploy once they're reorganized and they're not focusing so much of their capital on servicing debt. So if that picture changes and now you've got this capital freed up to invest in your assets, it means drilling wells. And so if you're a midstream company and you've got contracts, typically those contracts will have some level of minimum volume, but it's it's low, typically. Depends on when you signed it, who you are, and where it was done. But you also have this, this concept of dedicated acreage. And so if you have dedicated acreage, that's great. But if nobody ever drills a well on it, that doesn't do you any good, right? You're not going to see volume in your system. It's really not going to matter. And so what can happen here is, Chesapeake goes through reorganization. They have more capital freed up. They can now drill more wells once the prices recover and support the economics. And that volume will flow through to Williams Systems and those systems will grow. Their revenues will grow. They'll be able to expand those systems. And so it's it's a little bit counterintuitive, right? I think the initial gut reaction anytime you hear about an EMP filing bankruptcy is what happens mid, call it downstream, midstream and downstream of them. What other companies does it impact? And this is one, and there's a few other examples where this could actually be a net good thing for the midstream company. You know, you would think that there that would not uh, pie chart you have over here. Chesapeake volumes by gas gatherer Williams was seventy eight percent. That's pretty huge. It's pretty huge, right? And so, if you if you remember, Williams acquired those assets from Chesapeake several years ago when Chesapeake divested. So Chesapeake was the original operator of a lot of that. They sold it. I think Williams was the buyer of it, and that's been kind of one of the the flag, flagship um, assets in their portfolio. So they've been directly tied to the success of Chesapeake, and Chesapeake directly tied to them uh, for a period of time. Yeah, and another one you had in here was Crestwood uh, Energy Partners connected uh, 350 of the Chesapeake wells in the Powder River in the Northwest. Uh, that's another set of the assets that is uh, pretty crazy. Uh, $8 billion of debt. How do you, what's a few billion dollars between friends? That's, that's right. I mean, it's, when we talk about these large transactions or reorganizations, it almost boggles the mind. Like how, do you even, how do you service that much? How do you move that much money around? And yet we do it, right? This is a huge industry. And I think sometimes we lose, we lose track of that. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of money at stake and potentially a lot of upside for these, these midstream companies once these EMPs are on more solid footing. You know, I love your chart uh, on uh, page six. And uh, that is absolutely uh, since 4-1, we had Whiting, Ultra, Unit, Templar, Extraction, Chisholm, Sable, Lillis, and Chesapeake all declaring bankruptcy. I, you know, uh, what do you say? What do you say? I think if you look at this list and you go by order, none of them are necessarily a shock, right? And I think it's it's interesting because once you get into a certain balance sheet position, sometimes it can be better and healthier for a company to reorganize, really, and reassess, right? And that's why we have bankruptcy laws in the U.S. It's also a big reason why our business environment is, is so strong in the U.S. Uh, you have to have this ability to kind of reassess. Does it represent risk for, for investors and shareholders? Certainly. I think it doesn't help the overall investor sentiment right now for oil and gas right? This is the second price collapse in five years. 
And so every time this happens, you see a round of bankruptcies. And if you are an investor in one of these companies, certainly you're feeling it directly and it makes it harder for you to want to deploy capital in the future. So it's it's good and it's bad, right? It's a necessary evil. Um, this is energy, period, is the world's largest industry and hydrocarbons are the most important vast majority of supporting that energy industry, right? So this is, I think it's huge. And sometimes we lose we lose track of the fact that this is commodity price-based. Commodity prices are volatile. Natural gas prices, even in the U.S., are the, it's the most volatile commodity in the world, right? We study this in economics because it's so crazy. So that, I think sometimes it's easy to lose track of that. You go for a period of years and prices are over $100 and everybody thinks it will always be that way. And then, and then we have a correction, and here we are. Well, you know, one of the things I noticed it did it did look by your report that uh, all the basins were affected. It wasn't just one of the basins. It looked like everybody took a hit. Every major basin, legacy old basins like the Green River Basin, certainly, but the Williston, the DJ, the Eagleford, the Permian, the Powder River, the Marcellus, Haynesville, every basin has been impacted. Um, and I think that also speaks to when you have recovery happen, it's not just one basin that 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 wins, right? When we start to track higher pricing, where we predict that rigs will show up when prices start to recover, there are sweet spots and there are solid, solid assets, good acreage in every major play in the country. Now, it depends on the size of it depends, who the operators are certainly depends. So who gets the benefit of those early price increases? All of that um, certainly varies, but you have good assets in every major play in the country. And on the flip side, when you have prices collapse, every single play in the country is impacted. You know, um, it, it seems like we've had this, uh, I believe we've talked about this before, is that uh, so many of the uh, oil companies have, were on the debt treadmill, you know, trying to, you know, keep their debt uh, going and, and really trying to keep the shale going and everything else. And uh, as you take a look, do you think Q2 is, uh, like BP took a write-off of billions uh, just to get their balance sheet back to normal. Um, it's, a, it's an opportune time for people to reset their balance sheets by write-offs. Uh, do you think that that's good or what are your opinions on the whole write-down thing going on right now? No, I, I, I think it's good. I think it's necessary. And I think that you what you will generally see is operators want to get ahead of it. You don't want to be the operator that has to take a write-down in two quarters because you didn't get ahead of it, right? That's the worst thing. So I do think like you see it come in waves, you see them be conservative on purpose because they can always revise up, right? I mean, as prices recover, as some of these assets come back in the money, revising up is fine revising down, especially when you're behind the curve and everybody else isn't doing it, then you really get into a situation. So I would say it's it's a necessary thing. Um, when you think about these reserves, it is supposed to be based on what's economic. I would also caveat that the very, the very mechanics of estimating reserves, we, <laughs> unconventionals are still this unknown thing. Can we measure fully measure flow rates, gas in place, oil in place, we can't, right? So if you talk to any of the engineers and we have great relationships with the engineers that lead the petroleum engineering departments at every major university, so A&M at School of Mines, we talk to them routinely. And what they will all tell you is that the science has not caught up with the, with the current market. Can we fully accurately assess reserves? Do we know gas in place? Do we know oil in place? Do we know flow rates? We don't, right? So this is also in some ways an exercise in 
doing the best we can with what we know, but we do we have a full, full, fully baked understanding of the physics beneath the surface and what that means? We really don't, right? So I, we talk about this all the time. Um, there's some investors that really focus on reserves. And what we always point to is it's not as much the reserves that matter. Like that's one data point, but that's always going to be a conservative data point, period. What's more important is how much acreage do you have? How many wells can you drill? And what are the break-evens for those wells? Because that really what that's what drives success or not. Can you grow production in a given price environment or not? What will your type curves look like? How are you handling spacing? Those are all things that we can handle and that the industry handles very well. And so we always point to that. If you're going to buy something, if you're going to sell something, that's where you're basing your valuation, not on a reserve number. But, but certainly it moves the market. Capital investors look at that. And so it's, it's, it's not something we can ignore. With this crazy COVID world, Bernadette, can you just give us one last thought on the weirdest thing that's affecting the market right now? Because you see, you've got your finger on just about everything out there. Um, can you just tell us one last thought of things coming up in Q3 and possibly in the Q4? So I think a lot of focus is still on the macro, the, the most macro supply and demand. So I know there was some articles out this weekend where some of the airlines are going to increase their international flights. That's really meaningful for jet fuel. Right? And jet fuel is one of these things the whole market is watching because we do think it's going to take many years for air travel to recover. So I think that's one worth watching and the broader demand, right? We right now, gasoline demand in the U.S. is supposed to be at peak levels. So at this time last year, refineries here were running about 96%, very high. We're running about 80%, right? So you hear like, oh, the driving season, it hasn't been as bad as it could have been. That's true, but it's not good. It's still not good, right? So demand is still lagging way behind where we need it to be. We're still at record levels of distillates. Those are not necessarily good news data points. And so demand, I, I can't really overemphasize how important that demand piece is. And then on the supply side, I think all eyes are on OPEC. We're pretty confident that OPEC... Saudi Arabia, OPEC plus will be compliant. They'll be able to manage that intentionally and very effectively. Um, there was a weird data point for the UAE that showed them at down at like 23% compliance and that had the market really questioning what's going to happen the rest of the year next year. But I, I would point to that's going to resolve itself. We already went through a price war. I don't think anybody else wants to do that. And they, they know that's that's what happens if we start seeing cheating. So I'm not as concerned about the supply side. I'm concerned about the demand side. Um, in terms of weirdness, it's all of it, right? It's the pet chem sector, it's flights, it's now it's hurt two hurricanes back to back hitting the Gulf of Mexico. That's unheard of and pretty ridiculous, but what else, right? It's 2020. So you can't, you can't count anything out here at this point. Aliens landing, you know, or having uh, Area 51 validated, you know, who knows what we're going to see in 2020. I saw an article that there's going to be a meteor hit right before the election, potentially, and it's about the size, it's six feet across, it's about the size of a car. Like, well, that makes sense. Of course, a meteor is going to hit. Why not? This is one of the weirdest years that I have ever seen. And uh, Bernadette, I just really appreciate your time. Uh, you're one of the few uh, sound voices that we can turn to in this time of weirdness. So we do appreciate your time today and we really appreciate Inveris. So thank you very much, Bernadette. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Always happy to chat.
Guys, I mean, seriously, just high-level stuff there from Bernadette Johnson. We really appreciate her and everyone over at Inverse who takes all of their time to come on, come on on our shows. If you want to check out all of our past interviews on the Energy 360 podcast, guys, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, the best way to find all the, all the 360 closing bell, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, the Oil & Gas Show, iTunes, or Spotify. With that, guys, I'm going to go and let you get back. Thank you for checking us out. We'll see you next time.